from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. This week, we dig into the mailbag, and I pretend to be an expert even more than usual. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Shell Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So this episode is a little bit different. As any regular listener will know, we have spent the past few weeks shamelessly asking for questions from all of you, the listeners, uh, so that we could aggregate them and do a sort of mailbag episode where we take as many of your questions as possible and I use it as an opportunity to rant about things that I think are interesting. So originally, I was just going to do this solo and uh, talk at you for 45 minutes or something like that. But along came my friend Sarah Golden, who is sitting here with me. Sarah is a senior energy analyst at GreenBiz and also just a good friend of mine. And Sarah texted, I'm just going to read you the text, Sarah, that you sent me (laughs) last week. It said, hi, I have a great idea for us. I like how this is an idea for us. Let me co-host your Catalyst Mailbag episode and volley you questions. Here's my thinking, and then you put together a list of three reasons. You know I love a list. Number one, I'm an excellent proxy for the audience. Number two, our rapport is renowned. We'll come back to that one. And number three, it'll be super fun. So you've you've promised a renowned rapport and a lot of fun. Do you, do you feel like that you've um, set yourself up for something you can achieve here? Well, I figured that I have been inviting you to attend my events for a long time, and you know, been asking you to speak on different things that I do. And it was about time for me to invite myself to something you do. So here we are. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. You just keep doing all the invitations. You can invite me to things. You can invite you to things. That makes actually my life a lot easier. Uh, Well, thanks for coming on. I'm excited to have you here, and it feels much less awkward for me for you to ask questions rather than me to ask and answer them. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's also it's a role that I feel very comfortable in because I feel like I'm often asking you different questions about energy, and here I am being able to ask other people's questions about energy to you. That's actually uh, that's a good point. We have you and I have an ongoing text thread wherein uh, periodically you'll ask me, and sometimes I'll ask you some energy or climate related thing that is the signal is an owl signal instead of a bat signal. And I actually don't remember where the owl came from. Do you? I believe it's from your owl tattoo and your owl drawings around <laughs> yeah, your house. I, mean, I do have an owl tattoo. Presumably that's it. But I, I don't remember how we translated the fact that I have an owl tattoo into a text thread about climate stuff. But maybe that's a topic for another another time. So let's let's do a version of that only instead of texting each other with reference to to the tattoo that I have on my shoulder, let's uh, 
Let's take some questions from the audience. So I'm going to hand it over to you from here. You've gotten a list. We got a ton of really great questions. Uh, you've aggregated them and put them in an order that you like. So uh, take it away. Let's see how we do. Yeah. And while I ask you a ton of energy-related questions, it was a lot of fun to go through these because there are some very smart people that were sending in questions. And I love the direction these are going. So we're going to start out with, I think, just some high-level climate tech questions that I think are very much within your safe zone. And so we're going to start with Matt Waller, handle at wattmaller one any updates on whether solar costs will keep seeing big declines and where the biggest costs are, whether they're soft costs, and also whether it matters, i.e. is storage the only piece left for a complete and swift renewable takeover? Oh man, that's a big question. I actually think we're in an interesting moment now where there has been, for good reason, a presumption for the past number of years that solar costs are on this like steady downward trajectory. And though I think it has generally been true historically, it's definitely not true today. Solar costs actually have been increasing for a number of reasons, right? So we've seen the supply chain bottleneck that has plagued many industries has done the same thing in solar. And so things like steel prices and aluminum prices, which go into solar projects, have gone up. Um, all the input costs, like everything that's causing inflation everywhere has affected solar. So prices were already going up. Uh, and had basically stopped their decline. And then in addition to that now, particularly in the U.S., we have the kind of specter of this new trade dispute, which may is already wreaking havoc in the solar industry, delaying projects, potentially raising their prices, and creating a ton of uncertainty. So I think we're actually like, th though the long-term trajectory for solar is probably still going to be cost declines, uh, it's possible for the next couple of years at least, we will see steady to increasing prices for solar projects or for electricity from solar, which is actually a little bit hard to reckon with and, and makes it challenging for all these other companies that are sort of bringing a business to market that is reliant on really cheap solar. Um, it's not entirely clear that they're going to be able to see, like we, we, for example, at, at EIP, we invest in a lot of things that are kind of the next wave of like industrial electrification technology. And a lot of this stuff, you see their, their models that they build and it's got in it some assumption around well, we, we're, we're sure we're going to be able to get one cent per kilowatt hour electricity from solar. Uh, and, you know, that was always a heavy lift. Uh, I think particularly now even heavier. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any guarantee solar costs decline in the near term. In the longer term, I think they do continue to decline. There's no, you know, none of this stuff is like, we're not hitting an asymptote quite yet on solar costs overall. And there's still room to run down. You know, In the U.S., soft costs remain the biggest area to run downward. Um, if we can get some of the thornier problems around things like permitting and especially interconnection solved. Like interconnection queues are a problem for new solar development now. They are long, they're bottlenecked. So I don't know. Um, I think it's possible solar costs actually plateau for a while. There's the second part of this question, which is whether... It matters at this point because we've seen such huge decreases in the cost of solar over the last 10 plus years. So at this point, what does it take for that swift renewable takeover? And is the falling cost of solar necessary for that? Or is it more important that these other components like storage fall in cost? I mean, I don't think it's very useful to like weigh the importance of one over the other. But I do think, I think there's a degree to which it doesn't matter. Solar is cheap enough now that in most places... Solar and wind, I should say, 
most places it is true today that if a utility or or somebody issues an open RFP and just says, I want the cheapest power I can get, like give me the cheapest kilowatt hours, the response they're going to get is, that's cheapest is going to be from a solar or wind project. Um, and that's still going to be true even if solar costs don't decline a whole lot more. With that said, if you want to reach the full promise of renewables, which is going to be you know, significant penetration on every grid in the world, 50% or more on every grid in the world, plus using that electricity to decarbonize a bunch of other sectors via electrification, not to mention maybe using some of that electricity to like do direct air capture and other things, then yeah, I do think you need to see costs continue to decline. So I think, you know, we'll... Um, plateauing set set aside the trade issue for a minute in solar if it's just we we are where we were prior to this trade dispute and solar costs were kind of hitting a plateau or even increasing a little bit in the near term i don't think that was going to have a big near term trajectory or near term impact on the sort of trajectory of climate change but um but in the long term if it if costs don't continue to decline i think we will hit a plateau so this next question, you you hit on this a little bit a moment ago with interconnect cues. This question is from at F. Gonzalez Rosas, and the question is, what are the most important bottlenecks to accelerate the energy transition that we are not paying enough attention to? Yeah, I think that um, a couple come to mind. Interconnection is definitely one of them in like a very immediate sense, but land, I think, will become a big one. Kind of no matter how you slice it in terms of what the big swaths of greenhouse gas emissions mitigation solutions are going to be, they're going to be pretty land intensive. Uh, Solar and wind obviously are very land intensive. If you want to rely heavily on biomass for anything, be it, you know, aviation fuels or biomass energy or BECS, which is biomass with carbon capture and sequestration, which plays a pretty prominent role in a lot of the the net zero scenario models that you see, all that stuff starts land starts to become a bottleneck. So I think that that one doesn't get quite enough attention just yet. Um, and then beyond that, I actually do related to both land and interconnection in the long term. My biggest fear is that we will hit a an infrastructure bottleneck for decarbonization of a bunch of other sectors. So again, to the point of like. Think think of um, how much renewables we need to build today just to decarbonize the grid. And then add to that the fact that we need to electrify all light-duty passenger transportation. And then add to that that we need to probably electrify a bunch of industrial sectors, maybe industrial heat. Uh, you know, some, some people want to electrify aviation and trucking. Just add all that stuff up. And then the possibility that we're going to be doing electrochemical carbon removal and just the magnitude of the amount of electrical infrastructure generation, transmission, distribution that we need is kind of mind-boggling. Um, and that's that's going to become a bottleneck, no question. So I, I worry about about that. You could say the same thing, by the way, if, um, if you think that biology is going to be the solution and not electrochemistry, and we're going to use uh, synthetic biology to produce fuels and some of these really big high-volume stuff, proteins, alternative proteins— we're already facing today a fairly substantial bioreactor capacity shortage in that market, um, which isn't going to get solved if we, you know, thousand x the the demand for bioreactors in the near term at scale. So I worry about some of the infrastructure end up ending up being the the thing that stops us from moving faster. 
Do you think that in the last few years, well, let me tell you that I think in the last few years, we have been getting better about talking about some of these bottlenecks. I feel like, um, you know, 10 years to eight years ago, there was this contingent of clean energy folks that have been very rah-rah forward with clean energy. There aren't really any drawbacks. And in the last two years, as the market has matured a bit more and we've seen some of these crunches, especially around supply chain and other disruptions, that it feels like we're having better conversations about this and that the industry doesn't necessarily see that as threatening. I mean, thinking about your episode last week about um, supply chains for minerals, for rare minerals, for batteries, it seems like we're having these conversations a little bit more. So are we getting better about talking about these bottlenecks or are we just not fully recognize the ones that are coming down the pike? I feel like we we wake up to the next big problem like collectively a little bit later than we should. Why are we talking about bat why is the world talking about battery minerals right now? Because it is a current shortage. We are in a, you know, actual supply crunch right now. There were some people who were, and including Kurt from Kobold, who was on last week, and, and a bunch of other people who were saying this is going to become a bottleneck, you know, five or 10 years ago. But the sort of public consciousness wakes up to it when it becomes an acute crisis. You can say the same thing right now for fertilizer, for example. Uh, and I, so I think we will, we, we collectively wake up to it a little bit too late. Um, but there's a sm- always a small group of people who are sort of looking one step into the future and saying, well, if it is true that we are going to do X, then there are a bunch of knock-on effects of that, and we need to watch out for all those challenges that are going to arise. Okay, so you brought up fertilizer. We got a few questions around the nexus of energy and food. So I'm going to jump to a question from at Kawasaki Steven, which is, given the war in Ukraine's impact on fertilizer food supply chains, can you share more about innovation in the climate tech sustainable fertilizer space? Yeah, I mean, fertilizer is we're in a literal global crisis. Um, It was even prior to Ukraine, we were in a pretty tough spot, right? The fertilizer prices um, are driven in large part by natural gas prices. And so natural gas prices, particularly in Europe, had already been up prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You had already seen some of the biggest fertilizer manufacturers in the world, companies like CF Industries, shutting down Haber-Bosch plants, which is a big deal because there are only 300-some Haber-Bosch plants in the world. So all of the ammonia that we produce basically today comes from like 300-some facilities. So you shut a couple of them down, that immediately has fairly significant ramifications. So we were already seeing record high fertilizer prices. Then, of course, Russia invades Ukraine, and both Russia and Ukraine um, have a big role to play in the global fertilizer and sort of downstream of fertilizer market, as well as obviously the impacts on natural gas from Russia directly. So it's become, this is another one where like we're in a really, really dangerous crisis right now, and the global South is feeling it much more than we are, certainly, though we're seeing it in rising food prices already and will continue to. Uh, there has been a bunch of really cool innovation in um, reducing the need for nitrogen fertilizer uh, or decarbonizing nitrogen fertilizer because in addition to all the geopolitical impacts here, nitrogen fertilizers represent like 6.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, like 1.5% from the production of it, and then another 5% or so from the application of it. Um, so where we've seen innovation, at least that I think is interesting. On the fertilizer production side, there's a couple of pathways. There's a few companies that are 
pursuing microbial approaches. Basically, you um, use a microbe to fix nitrogen to reduce the need for synthetic nitrogen. In other words, reduce the need for fertilizer that you can apply. Pivot Bio would be the biggest company in the space that's well known, but there's others like like Coolabio um, and Anuvia. And then there's some more novel approaches. One that um, we've invested in is nitricity, which is an alternative mechanism to produce nitrogen fertilizer um, using not natural gas, but just electricity, air, and water. It's a really, really cool technology. And that has the promise both of delinking fertilizer production from natural gas, but also making it more distributed and localized so that we're not dealing with these supply chain impacts when Russia invades Ukraine. There's no reason that that should inherently cause a food and fertilizer crisis you know, here or in a bunch of other countries. Uh, in addition to that, so that's on the sort of fertilizer production side, there's also a lot in, um, you know, sort of uh, regenerative agriculture generally, and the uh, some of that revolves around sort of ways that you can manage crops better such that you don't need to apply as much fertilizer anyway. So I think if you add all of that up, we've got some pathways to significantly reducing... Oh, and I, I'm sorry, I missed one entire category, which is just green ammonia, um, which doesn't inherently solve the sort of supply chain geopolitical stuff, but it basically means using green hydrogen um, to produce ammonia instead of natural gas-derived or coal-derived, uh, in which is kind of what we do in, in China. Um, so that's a climate benefit, but it you, know, you still have to f- figure out all the supply chain stuff. Anyway, so all of that is promising to me. Um, the challenge is how, how fast can it ramp up? And you know, it's one of these things that I think will, will s- help save the world in, in five or 10 years, but probably isn't going to help solve the Ukraine crisis immediately. So sticking in the world of crops for a moment, we have a question from at new underscore energy dude, which is what are the likely implications of rising crop commodity prices for biofuel productions and CCUS projects looking to sequester carbon dioxide from biofuel plants, CCUS being carbon capture utilization and storage? Oh man, that's such a good question. And we've been spending a bunch of time looking at the world of biomass and it's kind of what all the various pathways for it for decarbonization in the in the future. It's really complicated, right? So you've got biomass is not monolithic. There's many different sources of biomass, and there's and then there's many different uses for it. There's also biomass that is uh, you know produced specifically for fuels. So this is the issue that we created with all of our ethanol subsidies. We grow a lot of corn, use it exclusively to produce ethanol. Um, I think generally that is viewed as having been a bad idea from a climate perspective, at least. Uh, but then there's a whole, there's also a ton of waste biomass, be it from agriculture or forestry, and that stuff is going to decompose and go into the atmosphere and create CO2 emissions. So there's a whole category of things you can do with waste biomass. Bex is one thing that I mentioned before that you can do with it. There's also other approaches like pyrolyzing it, turning it into biochar, which is a stable form of carbon. can also be a soil amendment, so that can be permanent carbon removal. Um, you can turn it into bio-oil and inject it underground, which is what a company called Charm Industrial is doing. Um, and, and you can do any of that with both the waste biomass and the purpose-built biomass some some processes require different inputs, but broadly speaking, I think you have this problem of anything that uses biomass as it scales up at some point is going to compete with alternative uses for that 
biomass. So if you're trying to source exclusively waste biomass, you need to be the best solution for whoever holds the keys to that waste biomass, be it a farmer or whoever's doing the forestry or whatever, such that they're going to sell to you or give to you their waste biomass because alternately they could do one of these other things with it, which means either you need to be the most lucrative solution for it or you need to have locked up the supply chain somehow. If you can't solve for one of those two things, then at some point as you scale, I think eventually you have to get into sort of purpose-built crop world. And that's where it's really thorny and you start to face all these questions around land use and if you're really doing it at scale, deforestation and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's really tricky, but at the same time, it's a huge part of the carbon cycle. And so you want to see innovation there. So what I, I will say, you know, been spending a bunch of time on it, would love anyone who has novel ideas around biomass or just like a really strong view on how this is going to play out on both the supply and demand side of this universe, would love thoughts because I'm, I find it um, sort of overwhelmingly complicated. It's actually going to be a topic of a future episode, I think. What is a purpose-built crop world? I just mean where uh, we purpose, where we grow, what we're doing right now with corn and ethanol where we grow a crop that could otherwise, it's land that could otherwise be used for another purpose, including producing food. And instead of doing that, because of the mechanism of the market or the subsidies provided, we turn it into fuel or something like fuel uh, and don't necessarily reduce emissions in the process. Got it. Okay, so one more on biofuels. This is from at Tyler A. Cole which is after listening to the most recent episode on challenges of battery mineral supply chain, I'm even more bullish on low-carbon liquid fuels. Do you have a thesis on the role of advanced biofuels and synthetic fuels? Which scales faster and lasts longer? Uh, Those are the right two questions, I think, at the end. So I think where, where there's clearly the best opportunity for liquid fuels in the long term. I think we don't end up using liquid fuels in light-duty passenger transportation, right? That, that all goes electric. I think there's sort of an open question around heavy-duty ground transportation, trucking, um, that could end up going electric, could end up being fuels. Uh, where there's the clearly the, the sort of best world is in uh, long-haul aviation and shipping, right? And uh, and you know, there are some people who will tell you that we're going to end up with hydrogen being the solution for both of those or a hydrogen carrier. Um, but I think that's where if you're looking for a big market potentially it, for either um, bio-based fuels or synthetic fuels, which typically we're talking about e-fuels, we, we mean, which is um, basically you take hydrogen and captured CO2 and you turn it into synthetic fuels, it could be a drop-in. So the two questions were, which one scales faster and which one lasts longer? And I think the answer is different to those two. Bio-based fuels uh, scale faster today, right? Because they we know how to produce them at scale already. We, you know, the inputs exist. Um, there's a ton of manufacturing capacity ramping up right now. And all the airlines particularly are, is actually happening more in aviation than in shipping at the moment. All the airlines are signing big agreements to start blending sustainable aviation fuels into their into their fuel mix. And it's almost exclusively bio-based fuels because that's what's available today. Um, however, in the long term, I think you face the problem that I was describing before, which is if you try to um, totally replace jet fuel, forget it, maritime for a minute, 
if you try to replace jet fuel entirely with uh, sustainable aviation fuels and they're all bio-based, then you just like do the math on the amount of um, biomass that you're going to need to to use and you're going to face some pretty big challenges. So in the long term, synthetic fuels look pretty interesting. Uh, it's more of a cost problem because as it stands today, basically like both input costs, hydrogen and CO2, are too high. And then the process costs, turning those things into e-fuels are too high. So you got to solve for all three of those things and scale up. But if you could do that, then uh, in the long run, I think synthetic fuels may win out. You just mentioned uh, sustainable aviation fuel, SAFs, which is something I hear a ton about. Um, at GreenBiz, we work with lots of different airlines, and SAFs are a huge part of their strategy for decarbonization. And I'm always curious about what the realistic potential of that is and what amount of aviation fuels could actually be displaced by SAFs. What's your view on that? It's one of these things where, like, it totally depends. I think it totally depends on your frame of reference. If you're asking relative to today, how mu- relative to how much um, how much sustainable aviation fuel do we produce today, and what share of of global jet fuel is comprised of sustainable aviation fuel, it's orders of magnitude more. You know, there's there's huge room to run upward from where we are today. However, if you look at it from the other angle, which is we have 100% of aviation fuel that needs to be solved for, what portion of 100% can we get to with sustainable aviation fuel? I don't have the number for you exactly because it's contingent on a bunch of these other sort of like upstream questions, I think, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's 50% ultimately. So it's, it's definitely not a solution that gets you all the way there. But it can be a solution that gets you from today, where we're at effectively 0%, to a decade from now, where we are, I don't know, 10 15%, something like that, which would be a ton, right? It's a huge, huge market. So one of the things that is clear is that there is, and I guess you're alluding to this too, there is more demand than there is supply for sustainable aviation fuel at the moment. If we had 30 new SAF plants, they would be selling at full capacity, Um so I, I, I do think that just in the interest of moving fast, it's worth pursuing. I just don't think it's going to be, I don't think we should do it at the expense of what might be longer term solutions. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. Okay, next question from at Winston Reed. From an investment perspective, what are your thoughts on polis-resilient climate tech solutions, i.e. market-driven, versus policy-dependent tech solutions in the current environment? Well, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm always thinking of it from an investor perspective. Obviously, all things equal, you want policy resilient solutions. Like you don't want to be reliant on policy if you can avoid it. I think the interesting thing, there's sort of a 
couple categories that have emerged fairly recently that I think ultimately are policy dependent, but may have a near-term world that is policy resilient. So the obvious example of this is carbon removal, where I think anybody who looks at this would would admit that in the long term, this market does not scale without substantial policy intervention. Like this has to become mandated in some fashion or another. Uh, Otherwise, there's no way we're going to get to gigatons of removal. But in the meantime, there's enough demand from the private sector that is policy resilient or not linked to policy that you can like jumpstart the market. So there's a lot of investment going into that. I think the risk that those companies are taking is that the policy does eventually show up at, at large enough scale. Some people might tell you you don't need policy there. I don't. I don't subscribe subscribe to that view. Um, but generally speaking, I think things that are you, you want things that have the um, ultimate pathway to become policy resilient, right? Like someday this will just be better, or someday this will just be cheaper. But you have to generally appreciate the new technologies take a while to get to that point. So there is going to be a period during which you need to find somebody who's either willing to pay a premium or where policy can help support early deployment of these things. So I I like things that are maybe near-term policy dependent, long-term policy resilient. Yeah, one thing I've been watching that uh, falls into that space, I think, is the government procurements. And last November, when the Biden administration signed a agreement with the European Union around using carbon as a metric for different procurements of, you know, different heavy materials. And right now there's a, a um, group at the DOE that's trying to figure out what rules to follow. And it's one of those things that I think sort of flies below the radar in most policy circles, yet seems really potentially influential of creating, jumpstarting some green steel markets or green aluminum markets or other other sectors that we really need to decarbonize. Have you been following that at all? And what do you think about procurements? Yeah, I think the government is a great, government is a huge buyer of certain things, right? Like there, there's um, new mandates around government procurement of uh, building materials, cement, that are going to be a really big deal because the government buys a ton of that stuff um, more than anybody else. In fact, so I think I think that is a big role the government can play as a as a first buyer, as a relatively price insensitive buyer. And obviously, the ability to use that procurement mechanism as a way to jumpstart a market is sort of dependent on how the rules get structured around procurement and whether it and indeed because it is sort of generally speaking, notoriously difficult to sell to government, federal government in particular, and uh, you can end up accidentally kind of entrenching incumbents even further because they're the ones who know how to navigate your complex procurement processes. So I think it's not a guarantee that just because the government says, I'm going to buy more low-carbon cement, that you're going to support all these novel technologies to produce low-carbon cement or, or whatever the alternative might be. But I think it's like a valiant strategy for the government to take on. And it's a it's a good role that the federal government can play just given that they they buy so much. Yeah, fair. Okay, next question from at O'Boyle MM. What are the unifying characteristics that put clean technologies on learning curves? What do wind, solar, electrolyzer, batteries have in common that other techs like nuclear and fossil plants don't? And which learning curves are heat pumps, SMRs being small modular reactors, and DAC, direct air capture, be on? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm probably not the world's greatest expert on this question, but I think the fundamental, the fundamental thing that drives these learning curves is sort of manufacturability. Like, can you can you scale up 
manufacturing of the thing at num- by number, not just by scale. So uh, in the context of solar and lithium-ion batteries, right, we just start producing, and, and these are, they're modular. So your single solar unit is a module. They're literally modular in the case of solar, but the single solar unit is a module and you, that is a manufacturing, it's a manufactured technology that you can um, optimize your manufacturing around, that you can automate, that you can scale up and produce more and more and more of. And that's where you start to see the, the learning rates driving down cost, at least on the manufacturing side. And you can see that in a bunch of those other markets. It's the same thing for lithium ion batteries, obviously benefiting from um, producing a ton of EV batteries now. Uh, I, I think that's where things like nuclear fission have struggled in the past. It's not really a manufactured technology. It's an engineered project. Uh, and it's tougher to get the kind of learning rates with stuff like that. So I think this is where you know, things like direct air capture are promising because depending on the technology, uh, you can easily imagine those being manufactured at large scale. I think we will see absolutely are already seeing the same thing in electrolyzers today for hydro- green hydrogen production. Um, I'm not, I don't know about SMRs, small modular reactors for nuclear. It's, it's sort of seems to me to be a tweener where like it is more manufacturable than traditional really large scale fission reactors, but it's not quite to the level of, you know, produce a solar module over and over and over again. So I don't know on that one, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, me neither. So the two categories that you just put together were the engineering challenge versus the technical challenge. Were those the two buckets that you just had? It's like manufactured, uh, scaled product versus engineered project. Does one ever become the other at a certain point in its life cycle? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you could imagine you do enough of the projects and it becomes more, and then you start to, I don't know, maybe the the corollary here is some of the modular and prefab building stuff, which is like those were engineered projects, building buildings. Uh, and now we're starting to do more and more of it as by manufacturing big components of it and then shipping those out to the field and that's driving down costs. So I guess that's an example where something can turn from an engineered project to a manufactured product. Okay. Well, sticking with this direct air capture, we have a question from at ZD, which is a bright moon. What kind of variance in direct air capture outcomes do you expect to see, either economic or impact, if the transition to at least 80% renewable grid is slowed by five years or 10 years? Oh, I love that question. So, okay. So just to repeat the question, basically, The question is, if we take longer than we expect to decarbonize the grid, how big an impact will that have on the market for direct air capture? This is one of those interdependencies that I think is maybe not talked about quite enough. Um, In the case of direct air capture, I think the bigger risk is the cost of electricity than it is the carbon profile of electricity. I do think you'll get some you know, you're always going to get some like life cycle complaints about what we're doing. We're using predominantly fossil-based electricity to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Isn't that dumb? From what I've seen on on LCA calculations, like assuming energy efficiency of these um, direct air capture systems continue to improve, it, it still will be worth it just from a pure CO2 balance perspective. So I'm a little bit less concerned with 
uh, I'm very concerned about how quickly we decarbonize the grid, but I'm, I'm, I don't think that is necessarily going to be the driving determinant of direct air capture's success. However, direct air capture is one of those things, as I described before, is, I mean, the produ- the main cost, right? You, you have a capex and you have the cost of electricity. That's basically it. The cost of electricity is dominant in these models. And uh, every direct air capture company is trying to improve their energy efficiency over time and TBD, you know, how well they do that. But if, you know, the models are super sensitive to the cost of electricity. So if you have 10 cent per kilowatt hour power, no direct air capture system is going to be anywhere near in the money, no matter what you define in the money as. If you have 1 cent per kilowatt hour power, then it looks really, really promising. So the cost of electricity to me is is almost as much as the direct air capture technology itself is going to be the thing that determines how quickly that can scale. Last week, your guest did not mince words of not thinking direct air capture was going to be a solution uh, for climate change. What's your view on the potential of direct air capture? You know, I think uh, I've read the IPCC reports like everybody else and recognize that there is no realistic pathway for us to get to one and a half degrees Celsius of of temperature rise or even really two degrees without substantial carbon carbon removal. There's just no way we're going to do it. Um, and substantial being gigatons. So, and, you know, within carbon removal, there are a bunch of different approaches as we've talked about, uh, but most of them are difficult to scale as well as you could scale a direct air capture system, just because you can literally put it anywhere. You're pulling ambient air, um, and you are sequestering CO2. And then as long as you can store it somewhere permanent, then it is permanent removals. So there's, you know, I think the fun, the first principles premise, which is why so many people are interested in direct air capture, is basically we need a lot of this. There's just no way, no way we're going to solve this problem without a lot of it. With that said, I think that it is not going to be a smooth path from today to 10 gigatons in 2050 or whatever the number is going to be. We're going to have, this is, you know, a market that is extremely nascent with technologies that are mostly pretty unproven. They are expensive, like very expensive by any real normal standard today. And they have a pathway to get cheaper. But even then, you know, we're trying to get to $100 a ton in the long term. $100 a ton is still not cheap from a societal perspective if you're trying to do it at scale. So I'm sort of somewhere in between. I, I, I'm uh, excited by all the activity in direct air capture, but I, I don't, you know, I think that there, some people sort of come fresh into the climate tech world and say, we need to focus exclusively on par- permanent carbon removals and focus on just scaling it up as much as we can. I, I think that's, you probably need to have a more holistic view of the the whole solution set than that. Yeah, interesting. I am by no means a technical expert, but one thing I try to never do is bet against engineers. And so I, I like to support all of these different people working on these different different technologies, even if they seem a long way off right now. Engineers, um, I've found both love and hate direct air capture, depending on who you talk to. Because some of them think this is a waste of our resource. I think this is basically Kurt's point from last week, though he didn't get a chance to make it just yet. He maybe will on some future episode. Is like, we have limited resources as a world. There's a lot we need to do before we try to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. Uh, and, you know, even just from a pure, like, literal, like, 
engineering standpoint. It, it should be one of the last things that we do. And then there's other people who say direct air capture is a really elegant solution to this problem because we can make these machines and we can and they are they will scale and we will hit a learning curve um, and we can build them really big and they don't cause all these other reverberating impacts that many of these other solutions do. And so we should just build as many of them as we can. So I've, I've met engineers on both sides. Sure. I guess it depends on how finite you think that brain power resources. And I'm just saying, I want everybody to align, align around this challenge. Sure. Okay. Next question from, uh, at Ben Inskeep. How do we stop Bitcoin from erasing all the progress we are making to address climate and the electricity sector? I mean, I don't know. I don't think it, I think that's maybe a little bit stronger worded than I would word it. I don't think Bitcoin is threatening to erase all of our progress in the electricity sector. But I do think that, uh, to my point earlier, one of my biggest concerns is around how much new electricity load there is going to be for decarbonization and how we are going to serve all that load, um, given that it needs to be clean electricity. And Bitcoin certainly does not help with that, right? It is new load that is not itself decarbonizing anything. Um, I know there's a bunch of people who disagree with that and think that like Bitcoin is the solution to decarbonization. I'm yet to see that, honestly. And particularly, you know, the economics of operating a Bitcoin mine are fairly rich and you're highly incentivized to run your system all the time. Um, with that said, you do have a lot of new like Bitcoin mines going up or just crypto mines going up in places like West Texas where there's really cheap wind. Um, so we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, I think it's going to be like data centers probably ultimately, which means like significant source of electricity load that from a climate perspective is neither good nor bad, basically. Um Maybe it just means you need a little bit more generation. Maybe some of it is flexible load, but I'm I sort of remain uh, a little bit skeptical that it's going to be super flexible load. And instead, it just ends up being another two percent of our electricity demand or something like that. So I don't I don't know. I don't subscribe to the notion that it's going to ruin everything else that we're doing. What do you think about Bitcoin miners that are buying carbon offsets? I mean. <laughs> What are they buying is the question, right? Car- carbon offsets are, um, there is no one thing that is a carbon offset. And there's there's huge difference between crappy carbon offsets and permanent carbon removals that are verified and measurable and et cetera, et cetera. So I don't, and I, what I will say is I haven't seen many Bitcoin miners doing the latter just yet. So if you're just buying like cheap, carbon credits off of a voluntary standard that are probably for like avoided deforestation and not verifiable or something like that, that I don't think you get to claim much credit for that. Okay. So next question is from at Mike Munsell, which is, this is going to sound like a softball, but I think there could be some helpful nuggets of wisdom in the answer. How do you prepare for an episode of Catalyst, particularly if it's a topic that's fairly new to you? It's going to be a sort of disappointing answer, I think. Uh, I don't do a whole lot of preparation, to be honest. Usually, um, we are picking topics for Catalyst that are things that have been on my mind anyway. Not necessarily that I'm an expert in, uh, as evidenced by all these conversations, but things that like um, I've been reading about or talking to people about that are kind of in the ether that I really need to just like get a clearer picture on the full story around. Uh, and so I usually have enough baseline knowledge that I kind of 
know what I need to get out of it. And I'm, I treat myself as a proxy for the audience as a result. So I typically will do a little bit of reading ahead of time um, and just sort of structure my thoughts on like, I, I think in narratives a lot. And so what is the kind of narrative that I need to get a clear handle on or get across in the podcast? And I'll put together a quick sort of bullet point outline for myself. But honestly, I'm, I'm doing most of it on the fly. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that comes across, but <laughs> preparation is, it's, uh, I also just don't have a lot of time these days. So I do what I well, can. Well, I also think that you're, you're selling a big part of that prep short, which is part of what makes the episode so great is the quality of the guest. And I think you're talking to a lot of people and recognizing where there's interesting conversations to be had. So maybe if, if you're like obsessing about some top, topic and then reaching out to lots of people, are you talking to a lot of people before you're like, yes, this is the type of story I want to be telling, or you're the right person that has the right depth of knowledge in order to be talking about this? Yeah, that makes it sound a little bit more deliberate than it usually is. But, you know, my job is to uh, try to get a handle on what I think are significant pathways to global decarbonization and then find amazing early stage entrepreneurial uh, startups who we can invest in to try to solve those problems. And so in, in doing my day job, I'm, you know, as any in investor is typically, I will spend periods of time digging really deep into individual areas, individual sectors, individual technologies. And I'm doing that all the time. And that sort of builds this bank in the back of my head of like stuff that I think is interesting or important. And then I will pull something out of that bank typically and say, okay, we it's time now. Like we we got to talk about battery minerals. I know Kurt. Uh, I know he knows this stuff way better than I do and will be able to help me understand it. So let's talk to him. Yeah. One thing I know about you is that you do do these deep dives, like you get these these sort of ideas stuck in your head and then you just keep looking into them and researching them. What's stuck in your head right now? The biomass thing is stuck in my head uh, because I still don't feel like I have it. Usually the things that get stuck in my head are something that I think is important, but I do not feel like I have a handle on Um Yet, and then once I feel like I can describe it succinctly, then I'm done with it. You know, I've I got it, and biomass is one of these ones I don't got it yet. So I'm going to spend the next couple of months probably periodically obsessing about it. Okay, final question, which comes via producer Daniel Waldorf, who asks on behalf of a non-Twitter friend, Sarah Lehan. The question is. What sci-fi story is the most compelling depiction of the dangers, possibilities of our energy future? Oh, I don't have enough specific examples to give a good answer to that question. What I will say that I think is interesting about any like futuristic uh, movie that has any depiction of climate or energy, I feel like they come in two categories. There's either the apocalyptic uh, day after tomorrow, climate change has ruined the world, Every you know we're we're um, we're living in hell because we didn't solve this problem, and it's very prominent. It's like the the whole topic is how climate change ruined everything, or it is this sort of more idyllic version of the future. But then it's just in the background, and so the way that you see that is like some movies will you'll just like pan over a landscape, and there will be a bunch of wind farms or whatever it is. It's never discussed. Right. Nobody ever, because it's not that interesting to say we solved climate change and here's how we did it. Uh, but you know, you'll just sort of like it's it's embedded in the ecos in the in the um, landscape that we have a 
100% clean energy future or whatever it's going to be. But I don't know. I don't have any specific examples that come to mind. What can you think of anything? I I can't really, and I'm thinking of those like that um, that Blade Runner opening scene where it's like panning yeah. over the dusty solar panels, and it's interesting to think about whether it's a rosy depiction or a negative depiction. Uh, there's going to be some kind of renewable energy present because. That's going to be the energy of the future, whether we fix this thing or not. It's also like, just from a purely cinematic perspective, it doesn't really, it's not really that, you know, it doesn't look that interesting to pan over a power plant. Whereas it's kind of interesting, like you can visually, you can see something with solar or wind. Uh, This is why we don't show batteries in movies for the most part. Like you're just looking at a box. Right. Yeah, there's also something about power plants where you assume people are operating them. And with solar panels, you can kind of just have them in like, you know, some post-apocalyptic hellscape and they just are. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, on that positive note, (laughs) it um, is such a pleasure to get to be here on the pod with you and to be asking you all these amazing questions from folks. Thank you so much for doing this. This was much better than had I tried to do it on my own. Uh, and I'll let the listeners decide whether our rapport is, is renowned, as you said, but uh, <laughs> I certainly enjoyed it. So yeah. thank you, Sarah. And in those um, three bullet points, you said that you always liked a good list. Uh, are you aware that your wife has invented a drinking game that is associated to when you list things off with numbers? Oh, no. Has she... <laughs> No, I was not aware of that. I can't pretend to be all that surprised about it, but that's uh, <laughs> that's really. I think funny. of it every time you start uh, start a list, a one, two, three. There, there are four reasons why that's a bad idea, <laughs> and here they are. That's oh man, now I'm going to be self conscious about it. Um, all right, Sarah, thank you again. We will we'll have you back at some point. Maybe we'll do this one more time. Love it. Thank you so much. Sarah Golden is a senior energy analyst at GreenBiz. She's also a good friend of mine. All right, y'all, how'd we do? Did we cover all the questions you had? Did we miss any? We loved getting your feedback, so we want to continue to do that. We'll try to feature some of your best thoughts or questions or comments at the end of each episode. So continue to send them to us. Just use the hashtag AskCatalyst on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and we'll keep getting to them as much as we can. For, for example, Tom Cheney, uh, who's at Cheneyman on Twitter, writes, It is estimated that more than 360,000 metric tons of CO2 are released annually in the U.S. due to cremation of human remains. Are any climate tech startups working on decarbonizing the dead? Any other thoughts? So, good question, Tom. Uh, I will get back to you on October 31st, but I would love to hear from any company who is decarbonizing the dead. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can find the show on Twitter at at CatalystPod. You can also find me, Postscript, and Canary there. If you like the show today, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review or share the episode with a friend. You can find links for this episode's topic and guest in the show notes at canarymedia.com. Postscript is, as always, supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. The producers for this episode were Daniel Waldorf and Postscript marketing manager Anna Rader. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.